Welcome to Culture Eats Strategy. Eats Strategy. With your host, entrepreneur Jamie J. Jamie J. On this podcast, we unpack the most powerful, intangible culture. Culture. Culture is way more than a mission statement or words on a wall. It's how a company behaves. It's what informs every decision, action, and reaction. Culture is the invisible hand, the true north that guides every organization. And if you create a legendary culture, you will build a legendary company. A legendary company. Now, here he is, Jamie J. Jamie J. Well, hello there. It's another episode of Culture Eats Strategy. I'm chatting with Derek Gaunt today. Pretty freaking spectacular, if uh, I do say so myself. Um, if you don't know who Derek Gaunt is, stay tuned. Um, he's going to blow your mind. Uh, he blew my mind. One of the nicest guys in the world and one of the best communicators uh, in the world, if I do dare say so myself, um, and fantastic author. Uh, so I wanna, I'm going to be introducing him in just a second before I do. If you are going crazy in your business, uh, we all know how important culture is. Um, one of the best things that you can do is consistently document everything that you're doing as if it's the last time you're ever going to do it. That way, when it comes time to hire somebody and you go to bottleneck.online to hire yourself a virtual assistant, you're ready to go. You know exactly what you expect to have done. And better yet, your new hire knows what's expected of them to do the best job for you. So this is a big part of culture. Um, and I want to make sure that I get that point across because I think it's very important. But without any further ado, I want to introduce Derek Gaunt. He's the author of the Amazon bestseller, Ego Authority Failure. And he's an accomplished trainer and negotiations coach for the Black Swan Group. Derek has over 17 years in experience in providing negotiations and leadership training to corporate, government, and law enforcement personnel. He's a 29-year law enforcement veteran. The majority of Derek's career was spent as a member and leader, get this, of hostage negotiations teams. He is one of the most respective hostage, hostage negotiators, the hostage negotiating leaders in Washington, D.C., in the metropolitan area. And Derek has conducted leadership training around the world, teaching leaders how to apply the hostage negotiation practices and principles to their world. Why is this important and what the heck does this have to do with culture? We're going to let Derek share that with you. Uh, Derek, welcome to Culture Eats Strategy. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here, Jamie. Uh, thanks for the invite. I'm looking forward to our conversation together. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm completely honored. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not just blowing wind or anything like that, you, you're one heck of a fella. And we had a conversation earlier um, to see if this would even be a good fit for you. And yeah. you blew my mind with what you've done in your past and the way that you ask questions. Um, and I said this, you, you ask what, not why. And I was paying careful attention to that. You just have a, a, a knack for talking to people and, and getting the most out of them. And I, I wonder if maybe you can kind of give us a little bit of a backstory and tell us a little bit about, you know, why, how, how you learned all this. Uh, well, so to give you some context, I started my law enforcement career in 1988. I became a negotiator in 1997, uh, team leader in 2001, 
team commander in 2004. And that's where I spent the better part of my career up until my retirement in, in 2017. So um, communication, interpersonal communication and developing and maintaining relationships has been a big part of my uh, life in, in my professional world. And it dawned on me probably around 20, 2008 or so that the practices and principles that we espouse in hostage negotiations can be uh, applied to almost any difficult conversation. In fact, that's what negotiate hostage negotiation is. It's that it's a difficult conversation. It's probably and arguably one of the most difficult conversations on the planet. Mm. And so when you talk about entering in a difficult conversation, um, I ask myself the question, what if, I began to handle the other side in those difficult conversations with the same level of deference and, and self-subordination that I do to a hostage taker. And I found that any time that I was engaged in the conversation, any time that you're engaged in the conversation and you're driving for a yes from the other side, you are in effect in a negotiation. Mm. And a better way to get them to move in the direction that you want them to go than applying the same principles that we used when we were trying to move a hostage taker into the direction that we wanted him to go. And so that's how, um, that's how the transition from the law enforcement world went into the business world. Initially, Chris and I, Chris Boss, the, the author of Never Split the Difference, another great book out there by the Black Swan Group. Um, he initially started to put it into business negotiation and, and that morphed into how do leaders interact with their downliners, their direct reports? How do they engage them to create the culture where performance is high along with morale? How do you make your downliners feel like doing something? Because that's, in essence, what we try to do with office negotiators, get them to feel like surrendering. And when you think about it, Anybody anywhere on the planet will do anything for you if they feel like it. Mm. Your challenge as a boss and a leader, how do you create the culture that makes them feel like it? To get that buy-in for change, to, to get them to understand the reason why uh, bonuses are not going to be the same this year as they were last year, et cetera. I absolutely love that. And I, it, it, this is why this conversation is so perfect uh, for this, for this podcast, because what I feel may be one of the greatest challenges, um, apart from just not even knowing you're not doing anything right is, is communication. And there's a certain couple different ways that you can ask questions to empower somebody to take an action as opposed to make them feel, uh, put up their wall. Right. Yeah. 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 Can, can you go into a little bit of, of, of the questioning? Like what's a good way of asking a question and then what's probably not a good way of asking a question? I'll tell you right off the bat, let's start with the not a good way to ask. A question. Perfect. Why? <laughs> Love it. Starting a question with why universally since we were very young, the question why makes people defensive. Every culture on the planet has a word in their language that equates to why. 
and in every culture on the planet, it creates defensiveness because it indicates that there is a right answer and you don't have it. <laughs> it, it indicates that there's a definite superior, inferior dynamic going on within the conversation. And people, when they hear the question why, they automatically think, now I have to explain myself. This person is passing judgment on me, calling into question my rationale or my decision making, and now I feel obligated to defend it. And so when those defensive barriers go up, naturally they impede adequate, productive discourse. So instead of asking why, we limit the questions to what or how. You can ask the same why question with the what question and get the same, um, get a more robust and candid response that's not filtered through defensiveness. Mm. So instead of saying, why did you do that? You just two millimeter shift in the language. What made that look like a good decision for you at the time? Just to, that takes away all of the, all of the defensiveness. Instead of saying, why did you say that? You say, what makes you say that? Or what made you say that? And that two millimeter shift, it number one, it, it lowers the defensiveness. And we're giving, we're giving them the idea that they can answer as expansively as they want, but we're still framing the scope of the, of the discussion. And, and, and we've removed ourselves as a threat. Using a why question automatically makes you threatening. Yeah, what do you mean you why? Remove yourself. Like, <laughs> right? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. How dare you? How dare yeah. you ask me why? Why? Even if you don't, even if it doesn't manifest itself into an overall display of defensiveness, for a brief moment internally, that's what's going on. And yeah. that's what all of our, our, our techniques are about, is understanding how the other side views the lay of the land. You know, I don't want, we don't espouse that people need to go out and walk in other people's shoes, mm-hmm. because that, that's, that's tantamount to asking you to feel their pain, and you can't feel their pain. So sure. instead of asking people to walk in other people's shoes, we ask you to see through other people's eyes. Mm. And once you understand how they view the situation, how they view the circumstance, what their frame of reference is, people become predictable. You can begin to predict how they're going to act, what they're going to say, how how they respond. And when you take that unpredictability away from a conversation, it frees you up. Mm. Okay, because unpredictability is just uncertainty. None of us like to be uncertain because when we are uh, when we are uncertain, we're uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very. And, and before before I go any further, I, I wanted to say I love I love the name of the podcast Culture Eats Strategy because it dovetails so nicely with um, with what we are all about, the Black Swan Group, mm. and that is putting. The, 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 uh, the focus on the motivations, the desires, and the, the, uh, the, the perspective of the other side 
is more important than the XYZ of how to execute. Oh. Yeah. Not that the XYZ of how to execute are not important. They are important. But if you don't understand the impact that your words and your decisions are going to have on, uh, on, on the environment that you've created, your strategy is going to fall flat on face. And I yeah, love that. Especially when you have multiple people. Right. Multiple people within yeah. within that environment, because if, if they're yeah. not all speaking the same language and they don't buy into that, you know, they understand the what and the how they understand that. And if you don't have that boy, strategy is going to be all over the place. Nobody's yeah. going to. Yeah. Really yeah. You, you, and, 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 and how many, you know, how many, how many uh, links in a chain does it, does it, does it take to diminish the integrity of the chain? It only takes one. It only takes one. And so if, if, if as a leader, you don't adopt the policy that, um, that, that your, your culture, the people within your culture are owed explanation. Your people in your culture are, are owed the opportunity to be included in certain decision-making. They are, they, that the people within your culture um, are smart enough to make decisions without you hovering over your shoulder, then by the time you get to the strategy, um, it, it's going to be all for naught. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely is. I, I'm, I, I really appreciate where you're coming from. And, and knowing what questions to have empowers teams. When you go and you talk how you made your transition from um, your service and thank you for your service by the way <laughs> but making that transition into maybe corporate into corporate america into the business world what are some of the what are some of the challenges you see there that you're able to address right away um the challenges that we see there are not dissimilar whether you're talking about corporations or you're talking about uh government and that is people have not learned how to um, communicate on a deeper level. Um, when leaders rise through the ranks, um, oftentimes it's at the expense of other people and they become self-centered and they view the world entirely through, through their own prism and they don't take the time to just sit down and learn how to carry on a a difficult conversation and so it, it boils down to a lot of the leaders adopt that do it because i said so mentality i know more than you by virtue of my rank within this organization and you will show me the proper respect um, there are times when direct authoritative communication needs to take place it's usually mm. in, in circumstances of urgency but those 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 um opportunities, if you will, not opportunities, those, those circumstances where they're talking in a direct authoritative fashion, they're very few in the grand scheme of things. The mm. most of the time, that type of dialogue doesn't need to take place. So one of the challenges is to get their heads around the fact that um, it's not about them, the leader, mm. it's not about the boss, it's about the employee. There are goals and objectives that every leader has to has to meet or attain in order to keep the organization on the right track. 
but it's the message and how it's delivered that's more important. That's the biggest thing. It's not what's being said. It's how it's being said. We're big proponents on cadence, on tone, and on delivery. Mm. Not on content. How you say it is five times more important than what is being said. Oh, and the sooner that, that, that business professionals, particularly leaders, managers, bosses, get their head around that, um, the better off they'll make their entire culture. So I was talking with uh, another gentleman um, uh, previously, uh, Gary Wilbers, and he said he read an article in the Harvard Business Review. Um, it was a study conducted over an 11-year period, and they, they interviewed over 200 different companies about a positive culture and a positive message that was going on. And for the companies that implemented a positive culture and a positive message, now I don't know exactly what the criteria is, they had a 750% increase in revenue. 756% because of a positive communication style. If that doesn't get your attention, I don't, if that doesn't get you to change your ways, if you're not doing that, I don't know what will. I mean, that's, that's amazing to me. Yeah, and it's, and it's all about, it, it's all about, you know, you talk about positive communication, putting people into a positive frame of mind. Your brain works 31% better when you're in a positive frame of mind. Really? I didn't know that. And, and so knowing that now, when you greet someone with a smile, when you, when you, have, a, uh, when you have an accommodator's voice that's, that's affable, amenable, approachable, you put whoever is on the other side of that conversation into a positive frame of mind. When they are in a positive frame of mind, they become cognitively more nimble. They are more likely to see the value in your message than they would if you were coming in otherwise, if you're coming in stern and authoritative. Yeah, because that puts them in a negative frame of mind and that fires the amygdala up. When that amygdala gets fired up, it blocks that that, 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 that frontal lobe and we we can't process. And it constricts our ability to think. And so when you come in with bad news, for example, and you give it in a, in a manner that doesn't show deference to the person receiving the bad news, you're going to get all kinds of pushback because they're going to be responding from an emotional place and emotions constrict your ability to think. Mm. Man, that's... So, Go ahead. I was going to say, so if nothing else, smile. Smile is enough to put people at ease. Yeah. So Anthony uh, is our COO and he's, he's a big fan of a empowerment and, and do this, make decisions. If you make a wrong decision, don't worry. It's not going to, it's not going to bankrupt the company, but let's adjust it. You know, we'll talk about it and stuff like that. And it's really neat because we had a team meeting the other day and one of the people on our team made a decision to do something and it didn't work out the best, but mm-hmm. Anthony, during our meeting in front of everybody else, commended this person on the fact that she made this decision. It wasn't correct, but the fact that she made that decision without either consulting, um, it, it was in her little area of, of expertise, her roles and responsibilities, 
and she didn't have to ask myself or Anthony, he commended her. And he said, see, this is a perfect example. There was a mistake made, but it's okay. Nothing bad came of it. We addressed the issue and we learned and moved on. And I thought that was a great example of addressing what could have been somebody saying, why the heck did you do that? <laughs> yeah. And, and I commend him for it because it's, it's, a, it's a teaching moment, right? Mm. And what else did he do uh, that was, was profound in that is that it was public cheerleading. It was public cheerleading. In front of the entire group, he stood up and he applauded this person for taking the initiative mm. as opposed to focusing on what could have been a negative. Yeah. And, and that's one of the points we drive home in, in the book, Ego Authority Failure, is cheerlead for your people. Put them up on the, on the bandstand when the opportunity presents itself. They'll never forget it. They'll never forget it. The other thing I like is that he gave her, was it, was it a woman or yes. a male? Yes, woman. So, so, so he gave her the autonomy to make the decision on her own. And it reminds me, the story is also from the book. Um, uh, 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 we got a call from a mental health uh, clinic that said that we needed to go to an address check on the welfare of a guy that just left the clinic. They were worried about him. The first uh, responding officers get there. We pull up and the guy's Ford Explorer was in the driveway and it had been murdered. Somebody had taken an axe and chopped through the, the uh, hood of the, the truck. Oh, my God. So they knock on the door. They get no answer. They go around to the side window. They peep in. And there he is in the window looking out at them. And he's got an axe on his shoulder. And he says, the, the officer says, come on out. And he goes, nope, I, you come in and get me. I got something for you. So game on. Myself and two other of my, uh, my negotiators were the first to arrive. And they went and they started to engage this guy voice to voice um, from behind cover. Uh, and I knew that they knew their job. So I didn't ask a bunch of questions. They just kept me posted via radio. And uh, one of the negotiators said that um, he's ready to come out. But he wants to surrender to Jill, who was the primary negotiator. And, you know, five years before this event, if you had asked me, would I have let um, any bad guy surrender to any one of my primary negotiators, I would have told you no, because that's the way I was trained. And the reason is because it's largely safety considerations. But she, she said he wants to surrender to Jill. The question or the statement behind that was a question or the question behind that um, statement was, I know what you're going to say, boss here's what we think is the appropriate action. I said, is Jill good with that? Jill said she was good with that. The SWAT guy said that they were good with it. And so I defer to their judgment because they were closer to the crisis site than I was. And they, they, they executed him coming out of the house and surrendering to the primary negotiator. Now I could have overridden that. And I could have said, no, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm not going to let you do it. Uh, we've never done it like that before. But what would that have done with my relationship with those two negotiators? Mm. Jill came on. She came on the police department at the same time I did. She joined the hostage negotiation team at the same time I did. I rose through the ranks faster than her, so I outranked her. 
But what would that have done to our relationship if I had overridden what they had already worked out in their mind as the, the most viable plan to get this guy to surrender? Yeah, they would have felt terrible. Yeah, yeah, they would have felt terrible. Like, oh, he doesn't even trust me. Yeah, yeah. And so when you offer that kind of inclusion, I would often tell these folks, you know, I expect contributions. During these hostage takings, when we call a timeout, I want contributions from everybody. The time for me to learn that we should not have done something during the course of a hostage negotiation event is not at the end when it's over. I need to know in the moment what your opinion, suggestion, or idea is going forward. And I call all of my people for, for that. And, and so um, that inclusiveness builds a culture where uh, the downliners, the direct reports, see transparency in their leader, and they reciprocate that transparency. Mm. And, and it builds for a stronger bond and a, a more cohesive unit and consequently a more productive unit. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, great, great story and a great, a great example of good leader. Um, so uh, I want to, I want to make a transition uh, before, yeah. before we get to wrapping up. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the book and how people can get in touch with you. Uh, the easiest way to get in contact with me is through the Black Swan website, blackswanltd.com. Um, and uh, of course, you can find me on, on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter if you look hard enough. Um, and uh, my daughter's just made me uh, get an Instagram account. So I'm, I'm, hey. I'm there as, as well. Uh, but um, Ego Authority of Failure, available on, on Amazon. Uh, it, uh, it was a year in the making. Um, uh, there were a couple of people in my corner who were, who were pushing me for several years to to, to write a book. Um, I did not know that it was going to be ego authority and failure. That's not what I had in mind when I first started this out, but, uh, what did you have in law mind? enforcement background. Uh, I was, I was going to do something that was more law enforcement related. Mm -hmm. And, um, the more I paid attention to what we were doing in the negotiations, uh, side of the things in the corporate world, the more I understood that it was applicable to to leadership, and it just it just kind of morphed. Um, and I began to recall some of the incidents and experiences that I had in law enforcement. And let's face it, law enforcement is a wonderful laboratory for for leadership. Mm. I was exposed to the the good, the bad, the incompetent the liar, the bully, uh, and, and exposes to some really great supervisors and leaders. So um, I wanted to, to weave some of those stories in with stories in the corporate world, stories from the, um, from the sports world, and stories from the military, and um, show the different faces of successful and less than successful leaders, and what made them so, whatever side of the coin they were on. And then interweave some of my experiences with hostage takers and, and how the communication skills that we used um, in dealing with them uh, was or is applicable to the leadership. So that, that's what led to ego authority uh, failure. I just wondered what it would be like if, if corporate leaders or any leader for that matter would handle 
their employees with the same level of deference that I did hostage takers. Absolutely love it. I love it. And thank you so much for uh, jumping on board. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this has been another episode of Culture Eats Strategy. I love that. I love Culture Eats Strategy. Thank you, Christopher Lockhead, for sharing that with me and motivating me to do this podcast. You are the man. Another great podcast to listen to is Follow Your Different. You can find more at lockhead.com. Christopher Lockhead, thank you. You're awesome. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. Have a great one. Make it a great one. 